rescue is worth it because they're worth it. And it takes it takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of courage to do it. It's not like you just say, oh, God, I'm just going to save these dogs and stuff because there's so much heartache to it. I mean, we get so many from shelters that, you know, people have had their whole life. And at 14, they dump them at the shelter. And those are the ones we always reach out to. And we kind of call them our hospice cases and they're in kidney failure or heart failure, but we just try to give them love for the rest of their days. And so there's a lot of pain and agony to it, but it is so rewarding. And if you really get into it, you will get a lot of gratification out of it. Welcome to the Practical Horseman podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandra Olenek, and this week's episode is with hunter trainer and co-founder of Danny and Ron's Rescue, Ron Danta. Ron was riding ponies by age seven and progressed from pony club and 4-H to showing on the Illinois hunter-jumper circuit in the 1960s. He attended a community college while teaching at a local barn before renting his own place and building a roster of clients. But after several barns collapsed in a huge snowstorm in the late 1970s, Ron headed south. He eventually landed in Camden, South Carolina, merging his training business with Danny Robertshaw, a hunter trainer and judge and Ron's partner of nearly 30 years. Several horses whom Ron trained were U.S. Equestrian Federation Horses of the Year, and he's won over 20 hunter championships at top A-rated shows. For several years, he chaired the task forces for the USHJA International Hunter Derby and the Green Incentive Hunter Derby, and sat on the USHJA Hunter Working Group. In addition to his professional success, Ron is equally well known as co-founder of Danny and Ron's Rescue, a nonprofit that rescues and rehomes more than 900 dogs a year. At their Beaver River Farm in Camden, Ron and Danny live in a small house filled with rescue dogs and a quote, not a lot of space for humans. In the 2018, they were featured in the documentary, Life in the Dog House, available on Netflix, which tells the inspiring story surrounding their rescue work. Ron and I spoke on the phone last fall about a variety of topics. In this conversation, he talks about hunter derbies, their evolution, what makes a good derby horse, and tips on how to prepare for a derby. He also talks about what makes a good horseman, which includes someone who understands that horses are individuals. He shares that he and Danny are thoroughbred advocates. At the time of our interview, they had four in training, and he discusses why he thinks thoroughbreds make solid riding horses and competitors. Finally, Ron shares how he and Danny started their dog rescue, what it's like to have 90 dogs living in their home at any given time, how they manage the pack dynamics, and the emotional aspects of animal rescue. Now, let's jump right into the conversation with Ron, where he talks about how he first became interested in riding and competing. Uh, when I was very young, um, probably seven years old, everyone in our neighborhood where I grew up, all of the kids had ponies or horses across the street or down the street. 
And so when I was a kid, I started, uh, my next door neighbor was my best friend and started going, I had like 20 some ponies starting to go over there and start riding ponies. And it just kind of escalated from that. And then my grandmother bought me my first horse and, uh, you know, then I bought my first horse trailer and started going to horse shows and started taking lessons. And, you know, it just kind of kept expanding from there. And something I always had a passion for, you know, I always have a passion for all animals. And so, um, you know, enjoyed it even when I was in school and even when I was in college and stuff, you know, I started teaching, teaching riding part-time while I was in college and stuff. So it just kind of kept going from there. I mean, I basically went to college because my parents wanted me to do it, but I really, you know, my heart really lied, you know, was wanting to be in the horse world. And how did you decide to become a professional or how did that uh, evolve? Um, well, I was already teaching, like when I was in college, I was already teaching riding lessons. So technically, according to, at that time, it was called AHSA. Um, at that time, you know, that technically made me a professional because I was teaching riding lessons. Mm, okay. And getting paid for it. So that you know, automatically made me a professional. Right. Okay. And then you had started out in Illinois and the Chicago area, and then you eventually moved to South Carolina. And can you talk about what prompted that decision? Yes. Um, you know, I grew up in, in Barrington, Illinois and, um, you know, love the area. My parents, uh, bought a farm for me. Um, and in the winter of 79 we had one of the worst snowfalls in the chicago area that ever happened and like 42 barns collapsed um one of those was mine Uh, i was teaching in the indoor arena and i could hear the crackle sound and we ran outside and all of a sudden it was like a domino effect it just started crashing to the ground and so then i had you know horse fans come and pick up all the all the horses and the border horses and they went to um, another barn, and by the time they got to the other barn that said they could take my horses, that collapsed. And then they, then the van went on to Barrington Hills Riding Center, and that time Bruce Duchesois was running that. And by the time it got there, that collapsed. And so anyway, it was once I rebuilt the barn, I decided I wanted to head south. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was done with the Chicago winters. Yeah, that sounds extremely difficult. Moving on, you've been involved with the creation and the growth of hunter derbies in the United States, um, especially with the USHGA International Hunter Derby and their Green Incentive Hunter Derby. Can you talk up about how you first became interested in developing them? Danny and I were invited to Carl and Rush Whedon's house. Um, they were having a gathering and said that they wanted you know, several professionals to come over and hear George Morris's vision. He wanted a Grand Prix of hunters to get started. And that was his vision for like the international derbies. Um, So there was probably about 25 of us that went and had dinner at Carl and Rush's. And um, George spoke to all of us and told us all his vision, what he would really like to see um, you know, a higher level for hunters, higher than the, you know, regular working hunter at that time. And now it's called high performance hunters. Um, so anyway, Bill Maroney 
you know, was at the dinner, and that's when USHJ had just just formed. And so after we had that dinner, um, Bill decided to let us all keep moving forward and to try to develop the International Hunter Derby. And we had our first retreat during Devon. And from there, it just, we had more and more retreats and tried to get, you know, the specs written and the, you know, the rules, the regulations, the, what the um, finals would be like. And um, so the first year, because it took us a while to get things going and we wanted it to catch on a little bit, it was an 18-month period. Now we're on a 12-month calendar for the International Derby. And, um, you know, early on in the very, very beginning, Jeff Teal was the chairman. And then that was like in the spring. And then when we went to Phoenix for the annual meeting, then they asked me to take over, you know, as chair of the International Derby. So I took that over, you know, after we had kind of done about six months of planning and have been doing it since. So it's been a been a very long journey, but a very, I think, a very successful journey. I think it, it has created a lot of energy in the hunters. I think, you know, 15 years ago, hunters were seriously fading. And so I really do think that the international derbies have sparked an interest. I think a lot of owners want to own derby horses. You know, when we began the derby program, there really wasn't what you would call a derby horse because we all just had, you know, horses that we thought could jump bigger. Some of them did equitation, some did jumpers, some did, uh, you know, the regular working, the high performance hunters. So in the first several years, you know, we had kind of a conglomeration of everyone trying to figure out what an international derby horse would be. And it's very interesting if you watch any of the, the tapes from you know, the first international derby round, and you can really watch the evolution of how people have trained and people have gone to Europe and, you know, really bought horses that they thought could be derby horses. So it's been a, been a very interesting journey. But I think now, you know, there are truly horses that are stamped as derby horses, which has really been fun for me to be able to watch the evolution and even go back, like I said, and look in our archives and see just how far the horses have come. And what makes a derby horse? Can you talk a little bit about the qualities? Well, a derby horse is very special in that um, the derby classes, especially the finals, the jumps are very big. I mean, one year at the finals, we had a vertical that was five foot one. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Those jumps, um, as Melanie Smith-Taylor told me, she said, you know, Ron, I jumped that in the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, it takes a very special horse to be able to jump very big jumps in hunter style and not being you know, really run at the jumps with a lot of power and then, you know, kind of push past the distances to where the horses jump, you know, back up like the jumpers do. And so it takes a lot of 
scope and range in a horse that they can go with a beautiful canter and the same rhythm and then still come up with, you know, a very stylish and powerful jump over the very large jumps. So, I mean, that, that really does take a special horse. I mean, there's a lot of great horses that are, you know, great three-foot horses, great three-six junior horses or amateur horses. There are, you know, great horses that are, you know, high-performance horses. But a derby horse, it's a very, very challenging, you know, test of scope and range. So do you think, do you feel like you've achieved or, you know, through the derbies, it has achieved sort of being the Grand Prix of, of hunters? I think we definitely have achieved that goal. Um, as I said, it's taken years to evolve and years for people to really catch on to what, you know, we were asking for in a derby horse. And, you know, like I said, people really nowadays, I mean, there's a lot of owners that will tell their trainer, you know, I want a derby horse. And so people really know that that has to be something that has tons of scope, tons of range, tons of step, and, you know, a horse that, you know, can jump in a beautiful style. I mean, it's not, um, you know, early on, I mean, some horses got by with, you know, not really breaking over using their backs, not, not moving well and everything like that. And like I said, our, our evolution of, of the derby horse has really turned into a very, very special horse. What, I guess, you know, when you're, especially at the, the USHA Hunter Derby, International Hunter Derby Finals, what, in addition to the, the size of the fences, what, what makes it exciting to watch? You've been, obviously, to, to all of them, so. Yes, I haven't missed any, except <laughs> I really hated not having it this year, but right. anyway, um, you know what, I mean, the jumps are very big. The track that they're set on is very challenging. I'll give you an example. One year when Steve Stevens, who's just a master of course designing, when Steve set the course for our International Derby, the very next day they had the Grand Prix and all the jumps stayed in the same exact place and all he brought in was jumper jumps. Hmm. Wow. And that became the Grand Prix course. And so there are, there's a lot of challenge to the tracks. There's a lot of challenge to, you know, the way that the in and outs are set. And so it really, you know, there's, there's, there's many questions that horses have to come up with and answer during a derby course. Derbies are obviously um, have really taken off at the the upper levels, but uh, they have been they're becoming more popular at the lower levels and also on local show circuits. Can you speak about the growth in those areas? Yeah, it's been very exciting. You know, uh, even in USHJA, you know, after the Derby got going, then the National Derby. Um, was born and the national derby is a very very you know important program for ushj and very very popular with riders trainers owners and you know those are smaller jumps i mean that the highest jump is you know three foot five but people really love it and they have their you know their classic round and their their handy hunter round and you know it's been very interesting to watch not only 
the national derby, but then if you see on a lot of more local circuits, you know, they actually are having, you know, their own form of a derby of, you know, a classic round and then a handy round. And, you know, even a lot of shows I see, you know, they have like tadpole derbies and they have derbies at two foot and at two six. And, you know, the kids are just loving it, you know, doing it. And so it's really, I think it's been very exciting just to watch the trickle effect from, you know, the international being the Grand Prix of hunters, but it's trickled down, I think, really all the way down through the to the grassroots. And why do you think it's taken off so much, you know, from the upper levels to the to the grassroots? I think because it's fun. I think because it's challenging. Um, you know, I really think, you know, people love the handy part to it. Um, and it's just, different than you know going around you know outside diagonal outside diagonal same jumps plain jumps you know there's a lot of course designers that take a lot of pride into you know developing derby jumps which are very natural looking something that you know you might see out in the you know fox hunting field and i think that that for a lot of riders is a lot of fun to jump some different jumps instead of the PVC jumps and the typical jumps we see, you know, in the ring day after day. And so I really think that's like, you know, I, I even, you know, went and saw a little tiny show across the street from our, from our farm. And, you know, they had a little two six derby, but they brought in some logs and some little coops and different things and lots of brush and, you know, it's just fun for them to do something different, something more challenging. And, you know, and the tracks are a little harder to ride. So it takes a little more expertise and horsemanship to do it. So I think, I don't know, I think it's just challenging for people. And I think people love the challenge. And do you have any tips, you know, putting on your trainer's hat, uh, do you have any tips or suggestions for how riders can prepare themselves and their horses for their first hunter derby? Well, I think you have to, you know, have a lot of trust and faith, number one, in your horse, um, and make sure that you are not over-facing them when you do an international derby. Um, you know, you have the, the option of doing the low options or the high options, which to me, if you have a younger horse and... You need to go wider even in the handy rounds and go, you know, smoother and stuff to give them some confidence and some miles. Um, I think that's all fine, but you really have to read your horse and know where your horse is training-wise, ability-wise, scope-wise, because the last thing you want to do is overface them and have them get scared or worried. So I think it's a big thing that you need to, you know, at home practice a little harder tracks, practice some broken lines, practice rollback, um, you know, and jump some different jumps than the normal show jumps we normally jump. So, I mean, to me, that's all in seasoning your horse and the education of your horse. And so I just feel that that's something that, you know, to me, if I had a young horse, I would start doing the national derbies first mm -hmm. and getting their feet wet doing that. 
and you know then they may start doing maybe the three nine greens or something like that you know to get your horse prepared for the international derby i think that with a young horse it's very hard to throw them into the mix of an international derby unless unless they are super brave i mean there's a lot of horses that come from europe and they've done a lot you know the meter 140s and 150s and stuff so i mean they've jumped some gigantic jumps for those so for those horses you know it's not so bad because they have been challenged already in the jumper field and then moving on to a little bit more for training um what what do you think makes a good horseman oh i think there's a lot of things that make a good horseman i think one of the biggest things i've learned through the years um number one i don't think we can train them all the same you can't cookie cutter train i think each horse is an individual their minds are all different their talent is different and so i think learning to read your horse's mind and what they're asking i think you know, I think in a rider-horse combination, one of the most important pieces is that, and we, we always stress this with our riders, um, Danny's very, very big on it, um, you know, even with any of the pros that ride our horses, that horses need to think that you're their friend. Um, anytime we learn, even us as humans and have teachers in school or whatever, I mean, if you have some a teacher that constantly picks at you and puts you down, you're not going to learn and you're not going to accelerate. So as a rider, you know, horses can't feel picked on. They have to feel that you're teaching them. Sometimes when they're a little nervous, we have to actually hold their hand and say, it's okay, and give them time to figure it out. But I think one of the worst things as a horseman is trying to rush the training program. Mm. I mean, I think the training program, each horse is different. There's some horses that are way braver than others. Um, there's a lot that internalize and worry. And I think it's really important as a horseman that you have got to be able to read your horses. And you cannot, I mean, I really stress this, there is no way you can train them all the same because they, they all tell us something different. I mean, I had, I had a horse uh, named Lestat that I bought off the racetrack and jumped over a pitchfork handle in a pickle, pickle bucket in the uh, aisle of the shed row and, and got him home and brought him along. And he was, you know, a very sensitive thoroughbred and he was one that you couldn't lunge to make him quiet he was one that I learned that I used to just take up to the ring and let him graze and hang out and let him relax and then the other thing he taught us is whenever he schooled for a class we always took him back to his stall and he would urinate back in his stall immediately and then we would take him right back up and show. And we did that throughout all of indoors. I mean, he was first year green champion at Harrisburg at the Pennsylvania National. He was grand green champion at the Pennsylvania National. Um, he was champion uh, champion at Washington International and reserve at Madison Square Garden. And, and that is what he taught me what he wanted. 
I mean, that's the way he wanted to do things. And even when we sold him um, to a very, very great famous trainer, she decided she was going to not let him go back and, you know, go back to his stall before he went to the ring. He needed to get over it and things were not going well. And the owner flew me down to Tampa and, you know, we schooled and I said, you need to get off. You need to go back to him. She said, oh, no, no, no. He's going to get over that. And I just said, you know, I've flown down here to see what the problem was, took him back and let him go back to the stall and pee. And he won all four working classes. <laughs> wow. You know, but horses tell us things. And I think that's the important thing as a horseman is, is you've got to be open-minded and you have to try to just, you have to look at it from their side, not our side. How did you, like in that instance, how did you figure out that the horse needed to go back to his stall? Was it just trial and error? Well, well, when, yeah, when, when we started, you know, showing him after we would school, um, you know, you could tell he would get more nervous and, you know, racehorses, when they run the race, they always go back to what they call the sweat boxes where they urinate and then they do urine samples and everything like that. So thoroughbreds are very, very programmed from an early age of going back and peeing. So it just dawned on me one day because he did race that, you know, maybe that's what he was telling us. And I just ran him back to the stall, had Danny get off. I mean, in two seconds, he peed, brought him back up, and then he went both classes. And so then I just started doing it, and it worked beautifully. And I mean, even at indoors, like I said, you know, we would school, he'd get off, I'd run back, even at Washington, you know, <laughs> I'd run back up the ramp, take him out. But that's just what, you know, that's what made him tick. Not that all horses would do that, but that, that was his thing. And we've had so many horses through the years and a lot of great horses, and they all have their little idiosyncrasies. Um, Danny had a very spooky horse that he was champion at all of indoors, and Devin and the stuff, confirmation horse named Arc de Triomphe. And he was very, very spooky. And Danny learned a long time ago with him that if he went in and picked up a trot in the canter and went to the first jump, he would spook. If he went in the ring and walked, and just kind of walked his circle and then picked up his canner, he was a winner. Hmm. And that's wow. just how that horse went. I mean, it's just so it's, you know, I just think as horsemen, you got you got to try to get into their mind and try to see what they're asking us for. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned, you've mentioned thoroughbreds a, f- a couple of times, and you mentioned um, earlier, uh, before we did the podcast that you have four thoroughbreds at your stable. Um, can you talk about thoroughbreds, especially when, you know, obviously warm bloods um, are maybe more prevalent these days? Yeah. Warm bloods are definitely prevalent nowadays. I mean, years ago, that's all we, we all had throughout the whole United States was thoroughbreds. That was it. And when you look back in the, you know, the, I mean, even all the horses back in the fifties, sixties and stuff, they were all thoroughbreds. We didn't have, many warm bloods and you know there are still so many great thoroughbreds out there i mean when you look at the horses that were just you know amazing horses through history i mean most of those all were thoroughbreds way back and so um thoroughbreds are very um 
and they're very durable. I mean, when you see racehorses, they run with chips in their knees and their ankles, and they still keep running and trying and stuff. And, you know, warm bloods, if they get a little scratch, they're going ow, 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 and thoroughbreds are just so tough. And, I mean, way back in days, I mean, when Danny had protocol, you know, when everything in the country and even Lestat and stuff, we didn't have legend. We didn't have Adequan. We didn't have acupuncturists. We didn't have masseuses. You know, we didn't have magnetic blankets, magnetic pads, which we have nowadays. And those horses were just so durable. Um, you know, basically back in the 70s and 80s, all we worried about was, did they have navicular? That was the big question. Mm-hmm. You know, and now you don't hear of navicular very much. But, um, you know, the interesting thing I find, even like with so many warm bloods, when warm bloods spook at a jump, they always usually hit it. When thoroughbreds spook at a jump, we always liked that because they jumped higher and crisper. They spooked away from it and gave you a, a really brilliant jump. And that's the funny thing about, you know, warm blood sometimes, the spooky ones, is they, you know, they spook down at the jump instead of jumping higher. Mm-hmm. But we have four thoroughbreds in the barn, and we've uh, we've done the Take-Two Thoroughbred Championships in Kentucky two times last year and this year, and luckily... We won it both years. We had a customer that's a wonderful customer, and we bought this two-year-old off the track here in Camden and have trained him since, and he's been circuit champion of WEF three years. And um, Danny has a horse that's uh, all thoroughbred, and he's been circuit champion three times of WEF and the thoroughbred hunters. And, um, you know, we've had some other ones that have been very successful, you know, doing other divisions, and we just got a couple new, you know, a new three-year-old that's a thoroughbred that we really, really like. And and I, I hope, you know, people sometimes will open their mind and not close the door to the thoroughbreds because there's so many out there, and when they're done with their racing career, everyone needs to remember their career's over, and I don't think most people really want to think where do those X racehorses go, but unless there's someone real famous for breeding, most of those X racehorses go to the slaughterhouse. And so we're very big on saving a lot from the slaughterhouse. And um, I don't know, I just hope it's something that the trend will start to swing a little bit more where people will open their minds and think about getting some thoroughbreds. Um, and you've touched on, you know, that you're involved in horse rescue. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, how that developed? Yeah, the horse rescue part is strictly something Danny and I do on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we save a lot from the kill lots. Um, we take a lot of horses, even from the kill lots that are uh, foundered, um, you know, in so much pain. And instead of making them ship 42 hours to Mexico, uh, or being cattle prodded because they they are so lame they can't even walk and they try to make get on you know trailers to go to Canada or Mexico you know or go on the planes to Japan a lot of them we pay um, New Bolton to go and euthanize them so at least they are humanely taken care of instead of having to make that long journey and fall down and get trampled you know on the on the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do save a lot of horses and a lot of them, you know, we have retired, but any of them that we get and we think are rideable will break and train. And because we do this for a living, 
Um, and then we bring them along and um, some of them go to handicap programs. We have a lot of horses that we save that are doing pony club kids, 4-H kids, some on the A circuit that they didn't have hardly any money and they needed a horse. And so we try to do that, you know, get several a year to try to keep doing that just to help from the, you know, from the kill pens. And, um, you know, we, we have a very large dog rescue, but we do not, you know, we don't run the horses through the dog rescue because that's strictly a nonprofit dog rescue. So the, the, the horse rescue thing is just something that Danny and I have a great passion for and do. That's great. Um, so you've mentioned, you know, you're the co-founder of Danny and Ron's Rescue, which rescues and rehomes more than 900 dogs a year. Um, can you talk a little bit about how how that rescue got started? Yeah, it's been a long journey. I mean, Danny and I, through the years, you know, we'd always go to the shelter and get like four dogs at the shelter on euthanasia, bring them back to the farm, try to rehab them, figure out, you know, what their problems were, or if they had issues. And then we would try to lean on our horse friends to give them homes. We did that. And then when Hurricane Katrina hit, you know, we first reached out and helped a lot of people, um, you know, buying TVs and toothbrushes and everything because they had nothing. And so we kind of reached out to the human community first. And then after about a week and a half of doing that on the TV, we started seeing all these dogs floating on roofs and hung up in trees and all that stuff and thought, oh, my Lord, you know, all these four dogs are in desperate need. So we, you know, I contacted some people in Louisiana and we sent the horse trailer down and brought, I think, about 30 dogs. The first trip, we sent supplies down, asked them what they needed. They needed blankets and towels and dog food and cat food and carriers and different things. So we sent all that down and then came back with dogs. And, you know, at that time, we really weren't set up to be a rescue. And so we made pens at my house and at Danny's farm. And, you know, and then we leaned again on our horse community to, uh, you know, find them homes. I mean, once we did Katrina, the next, uh, we did immediately that at Harrisburg, which is beginning of October, we took 22 dogs up to Harrisburg and placed them all with horse people. You know, during that horse show, we had one trailer come with dogs. Um, in fact, Holly Orlando's dog, the nutmeg that she got from us from Katrina, she just passed away about three months ago. But um, we started doing that. And then after that, you know, we wound up taking about 600 dogs from Hurricane Katrina. And the hard part was, is because we were not set up for a nonprofit. So to afford to spay, neuter, heartworm test, house them all, take care of them. Financially, it was a major drain, something that we really didn't even think about. Um, when we got into it, we were just in such panic for the dog's lives that we, you know, we really didn't go through a big thought process of what we were doing. And, you know, we got interviewed through a lot of newspaper articles and everything about what we were doing, saving all these Katrina dogs. And luckily, an attorney in Michigan had read an article on us and contacted us and said, you know, I see you guys you know, are not a nonprofit, can't take donations, and you're doing this from your retirement fund. And, you know, she just said, if you keep doing this, obviously, you guys aren't going to have a retirement fund. And so I would like to do the paperwork for you and get you made to be a nonprofit so you could receive donations. And I also will stay on and be your attorney pro bono. So, you know, in 2000 and 
uh, eight, we became a nonprofit, 501c3, and formed Danny and Ron's Rescue. And so from that date, we have now placed over 12,600 dogs. Um, the special thing about a rescue is most rescues and stuff, dogs live in kennels and runs, and um, our dogs all live in the house, the dog house. Um, we have completely turned the house into dog friendly. They can get on the furniture, the chairs, the couches. They have doggy doors. Um, we crate train them at night so that they learn to go to the bathroom outside. Um, we have an amazing staff, but um, we are very, very lucky. One of our adopters adopted a little chihuahua from us and when he was leaving, he just turned around and said, you know, well, gentlemen, thank you so much. And by the way, you two will be my next documentary. <laughs> and we really didn't think much about it because we didn't really know Ron Davis that well as he was adopting a dog from us. And so we smiled and waved and shut the door and didn't even think twice about it. And then he started calling us and said, I really want to do a documentary on you all. And we took about a year. We kept saying, no, we're not interesting enough. You know, why, why do you want to watch us feed dogs and, da, 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 and stuff? So then we agreed to do it. And anyway, Life in the Doghouse came out in 2018. And, um, you know, it's, it's really been very successful. It's had over 3.1 million views on Netflix, um, was listed in the top 100 viewed movies on Netflix. And from that, we have signed a book deal and are doing four children's books with Simon and Schuster. And then we're also doing a grown-up book um, with a lot more in-depth than Life in the Doghouse. Life in the Doghouse, Ron did a great overview of what our lives are and how we do the dogs and everything like that. But the grown-up type of book is going to go into a lot deeper you know, views of really what we do and stuff. So anyway, we're looking forward to that coming at coming, you know, ahead of us. And then we also, um, a jigsaw puzzle company reached out to us and they, they want to do a jigsaw puzzle with our rescue dogs and our story on the back of it. And, um, they're going to donate some of the proceeds to us, but they're, they're actually making a hundred thousand puzzles. And they're an international puzzle company. So we're very excited about that. That'll be coming out this spring. Mm. And uh, we were lucky enough. Briar Horse did the protocol horse and the horse that Danny won so much on. And they give a proceed to all the protos, you know, to our rescue for all the protocol horses that are sold. There's two dogs with protocol and then our story on the back. So it's it's been an amazing journey and we're very so grateful to our horse community and we're so grateful to all of our donors and supporters because it's uh it really has put us on the map and life in the doghouse has put us on the map you know so internationally we have so many fans in japan and new zealand and england and australia and germany and i mean we just get letters and letters <laughs> and letters from all over the world so it's uh it's really, uh, Danny and I never dreamed that it would turn out to be, you know, this big of a rescue. Um, you know, we were lucky enough for our Katrina work in 2008. We were the ASPCA honorees of the year. Mm -hmm. um, so that was an exciting award to receive. But anyway, it's really, really, really grown from there. And um, 
the nice part is since life in the doghouse has helped us um, with donations and stuff, we've started, you know, an elderly program where we pay, you know, bills on elderly people's dogs so they can keep them because they're on Medicare and Medicaid don't have the money to pay for all the medical bills on their dogs. And then we do a veterans program where we assist veterans to be able to keep their dogs. And uh, we're doing a spay neuter, a free spay neuter program in our area that we're paying for all the spay and neuter. And then during COVID, we have currently, as of today, when we do food delivery with seven food banks in Palm Beach County, uh, we've given out over 66,000 pounds of cat food and dog food to all of the people that are having to go to the food banks because they're unemployed during COVID. So we're very, I don't know, it, it, it's a very feel-good thing because now we're being able to expand so much and really help a lot of communities and a lot of people in need. That's It's great work, and it, it is neat to see how it's grown and how you've been, been able to help more and more animals and dogs. And Yep. Yeah, no, it's been great. Yeah. It's been an amazing journey. <laughs> how you, how would you describe, this is obviously in the documentary, but, you know, could you sum up sort of a day in your life uh, with, with so many dogs? I think, you know, I've read you've had between 50 and 71 dogs in your house at, at a, any given time. Yeah, it's it's a lot of work. I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, we have added on to the doghouse here and built quarantine rooms and all different rooms and stuff. And so when Danny and I are home, um, we get up usually about 520 in the morning. And just like when we left last week for Aiken, we had 91 dogs in the house. Mm-hmm. And so when we are home, we get up and we make all the food, do all the meds. You know, sometimes we'll have 30, 40 dogs on medication. So you have to, you know, get all the meds to the proper dogs. And um, so we get up and we feed them and, um, you know, and then start letting them out. And then the staff comes in early in the morning and then they take over so we can go to the barn. And then in the evenings, we come back to the doghouse and, you know, watch the dogs at night and put them all to bed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really, it's a lot of work. I mean, we're very, since we've grown so much and have so many dogs, we have, you know, gotten more and more staff, which we're very blessed because we just have amazing staff members that really love the dogs, really care about the dogs. And, you know, there's, I mean, every day there's, two or three vet runs and we constantly are called. I mean, I would say in the last three weeks, we've probably done 17, 18 surgeries of dogs that aren't even in our rescue, but people's dogs were hit by cars. Some dogs ate batteries, some, you know, this and that. They have no money to do the surgeries. Dogs will die. So we've really reached out and doing, um, we have a, a special fund that we raise money for of people that don't have money for surgery for their dogs. And so we're very excited about that, that we've reached out to so many people and saved their dogs' lives because otherwise they would have to be euthanized because they just did not have the funds to do the tragic surgery, you know, that their dog needed at the time. But it's 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 a, it's a lot of work. Um, anyone that comes to the doghouse, people that have seen life in the doghouse, you get kind of an idea of it, but Everyone that comes to the doghouse said that it really still even doesn't do it justice because there's nothing like walking into a house with like 80 some dogs loose. You just can't believe 
that they all can live in harmony. They all can get along. They all, you know, just, just live as one big family. How do, how are you able to do that? You know, have so many living in harmony. We really, well, early on in this, you know, it's, it's all kind of as the Derby's been an evolution, uh, dog rescue for Danny and I has, have been an evolution. We've lived and we've learned, um, you know, because we didn't know, I mean, other than loving dogs and taking care of dogs properly, we didn't really know much about this. But in reading and doing a lot of study, um, we have found out that the key piece to harmony in dogs is the humans have to be the pack leaders. In nature, dogs, coyotes, you know, wolves and everything, they all have a pack leader. And it's the same thing with dogs. There's a dominant dog that kind of controls the pack. And so one thing you always have to remember is we as humans in this doghouse, we have to be the pack leaders. Anytime we lose control, we lose control of the pack. Mm. So we really work on teaching the dogs to have manners and live in harmony and we also have to make sure in the canine world that the dogs that we feel are the pack leaders, that they're very compassionate and the proper dog to be the pack leader. You don't want to get a pack leader that's very aggressive or dog aggressive because that, that behavior is going to trickle down. It's the old trickle effect. And so... Um, we're very like, we can, we can see in our groups in our dog groups of who is going to be the pack leader. And sometimes we have to steer that a little bit and not allow that one to be the pack leader because we don't feel it's the best, best one to be the pack leader. And so we have to kind of nip that a little bit and keep them down a little bit in the chain and let, you know, one that we think should be the pack leader become the pack leader. So it's, uh, it's a very interesting theory, but knock on wood, it has worked beautifully for us. <laughs> um, you know, they really do get along and they, you know, I mean, our kitchen area alone, kitchen and dining room area, I mean, there's usually 29 to 35 dogs, you know, in there. And if you came here and just watch them all just lay together and play together and I mean, they just, it's, it's quite remarkable. But the thing we learned is when you go to shelters, and I'm sure all your listeners have gone to dog shelters in previous times, all of the dogs that are scared and timid, they always hide in the back of the kennel. And a lot of times they even turn their head and they face the wall. They don't look at people because they're scared. Those dogs never get adopted. And those are a lot of the dogs that we take. We always like at shelters, we always ask and we don't say, give us the cutest dogs. We say, give us the ones that you don't think will get a home. Mm. And Living in a house environment, we have found that in, if those dogs stay in that concrete kennel, they're never going to come out of their shell. But by living in the house and living with some positive energy dogs, most of them all rehab. Like if we get a really, really scared dog that's just petrified, ones we get from puppy mills that have never been out of a crate and never stepped on grass and never been in a house and stuff. A lot of times we'll use hound couples, you know, and we will couple it to a real positive dog. And so wherever that positive dog goes, that scared dog has to go. 
because our dog trainer said never let them go hide under the desk or a couch or behind a chair because they will turn their brain off and they will just keep doing that make them get out and socialize and so we're really big on our scared dogs we leave drag leashes and we really make them interact with the entire pack what advice would you give for someone who wants to get involved with rescuing animals um you know i think the biggest thing is you have to remember in rescue, it is extremely painful. I mean, when we get all the court abuse cases and dogs that have been badly neglected, it is very emotional draining on you. Um, so you have to realize there's a lot of pain in rescue. The joy in rescue is when they get their forever home. And we are very, very diligent, um, you know, in vetting our adopters. Um, you know, we even Google Earth everybody's house if they say they have a fence yard and they don't, and they've lied to us, they go on the do not adopt list. Mm -hmm. um, we're very particular, you know, our contracts read, you can never give the dog away. If you don't want your dog in 10 years, we will pay and send transport and bring them back to us. Because Danny and I vowed many years ago that they would never end up in a shelter again. Mm -hmm. And if anyone gives their dog away, they agree in their contract to pay us $5,000 and we have the right to sue them. Hmm. So we're very, very strict on that. But for people getting into rescue, you know, the big thing you need to realize is rescue is worth it because they're worth it. And it takes, it takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of courage to do it. It's not like you just say, Oh God, I'm just going to save these dogs and stuff because there's so much heartache to it. I mean, we, get so many from shelters that, you know, people have had their whole life and at 14 they dump them at the shelter and those are the ones we always reach out to and we kind of call them our hospice cases and they're in kidney failure or heart failure, but we just try to give them love for the rest of their days. And so there's a lot of pain and agony to it, but it is so rewarding and if you really get into it, you will get a lot of gratification out of it. I mean, I'm not going to lie to anybody and say that there's a lot of times where we don't cry at night because it's been a painful day watching some of the abuse cases we get in and everything what's been done to dogs but but it is you know when you when they get their forever home and you see that family wrap their arms around that dog and then we get emails and pictures and everything and they're playing ball and they're at the beach and they're here and they're there you know that just makes us work harder uh, well, this has been a, a really fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time. So thank you very much. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode with hunter trainer and dog rescue advocate, Ron Danta. Join us again for upcoming conversations with eventer and consignment horse sales expert, Courtney Cooper, who offers advice on how to find and buy the perfect partner and Irish eventer, Tim Bork. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. I'm Sandra Olenek, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman Podcast. <laughs>